Good morning again, and welcome again to Trinity Presbyterian Church. Um, Next Sunday, Mitchell will be resuming our study of Matthew with the Sermon on the Mount, but this morning, um, I'm privileged to um, speak from Romans chapter 8. So if you would, if you haven't already, be turning your Bibles to the book of Romans. Many of you will be familiar with this passage Uh, German commentator Philip Spenner said that if the Bible was a ring and the book of Romans its precious stone, chapter 8 would be the sparkling point of the jewel. Romans 8 marks a significant turning point in Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And verse 1 gives us one of the most wonderful and succinct statements of the gospel that we find in Scripture. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no better news than this. Our greatest need is to come out from under the wrath and condemnation of our creator due to us for our sin, and this need is satisfied fully in Christ Jesus. Christ's satisfaction is eternal, And we will never be under the wrath of God again if we have truly trusted in Jesus alone. Now the entirety of the gospel message of Jesus Christ with all its redemptive promises are in full view in Romans 8. And it's a privilege to take just a small look at the treasure that Paul has for us this morning. So before we jump into this morning's passage, would you pray for me for God's help um, as we receive his word? Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you have given us your word by which we know you and learn to live in relationship with you. As we hear your holy word this morning, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence. Sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth. Shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So this morning's lesson is from the book of Romans, chapter 8, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Hear now the holy word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, 
the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this first section of Romans 8 is commonly referred to as our title reflects and as you might find in your Bibles, life in the spirit. Paul is celebrating the new life of the spirit that Christians enjoy as a result of Christ's saving work. The therefore in verse 1 indicates that Paul is stating an important summary and conclusion related to his preceding argument. The therefore is based first on the exclamation of victory that comes through Jesus Christ our Lord, which is linked back to chapter 7, verse 6, where Paul said, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit. And more broadly, Paul seems to be recalling his whole argument about salvation in Christ from chapters 3 through 5, which is that we were once condemned sinners, subject to the wrath of God, But suddenly Jesus entered the world and died for us, bearing the wrath of God in our place, and there is now no condemnation. The now in verse 1 here in chapter 8 matches the now in verse 6 of chapter 7, showing that the new era of redemptive history has now been inaugurated by Christ Jesus for those who are now in right standing before God, because they are united with Christ. But the summary relates further to the whole argument presented in 3, 4, and 5, um, because it says no condemnation, it, it, it's echoing the conclusion stated in 5, 1, that says, therefore we have peace with God. And it underscores the implications of the gospel first introduced in chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, which says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in the righteousness of God, for the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteousness, the righteous shall live by faith. So Romans 5.1 describes the permanent peace, the shalom, that Christ brings between the Lord and his people. The assurance of Romans 5 is not limited to the point of conversion, but building on what happens when we move from being outside of Christ to being in Christ, it has particular focus on justification as the entry point into the kingdom. So as Paul immediately goes on to explain here in chapter 8, there is no condemnation For the Christian, because God has condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son, verse 3, to pay the penalty for sin through his death on the cross. God sent his son as a sacrifice for sin and paid the full penalty for sin in his sacrifice. And although we continue to fall short and cannot muster the perfect obedience needed to escape the wrath of God, the Lord no longer condemns us if we are in Christ. 
When we stumble in our sanctification through sin, Romans 8.1 reminds us that our righteous standing on judgment day is secure, for it does not rest in, our, in ourselves, but in the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to us in our justification. Nevertheless, Romans 8.1 also builds on Paul's description of the believer's ongoing struggle against sin in chapters 6 through 7. So 8.1 also shows us how the reality of our once-for-all justification continues to apply to and have bearing on our lives as Christians. The following verses show that indwelling sin is overcome through the power of the indwelling spirit. Because we have been declared righteous in Christ, the spirit of God also sets us free from the law of sin and death. Before we knew Christ, we could only sow in the flesh and reap eternal destruction. Now that we are in Christ, we sow to the spirit and reap eternal life, Galatians 6. So by our sanctification and through the Holy Spirit, God prepares us for the eternal life that is guaranteed by our justification, and he grants us a taste of that eternal life here and now. So as we strive to obey God and walk in the Spirit, we will find ourselves falling short. It's at those points that we must remember that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sins and our failures do not move the Lord to give up on us or to cast us out of the kingdom, for we are secure in Christ. And secure in Christ, we live a life of faith and repentance, continually serving the Lord and putting sin to death. John Stott wrote that the Christian life is essentially life in the spirit. That is to say, a life which is animated, sustained, directed, and enriched by the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, true Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, indeed impossible. So this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning, and that's on the work of the spirit in the life of the believer as we seek to walk in holiness. I want to look at three things that we learn about the Spirit here in these first 11 verses. That's the indwelling of the Spirit, the mindset of the Spirit, and the resurrection of the Spirit. So if you'll take a look with me at Romans 8, or chapter 8, verse 3, it says, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. As we read over and over in Romans and throughout the epistles, our individual fulfillment of the law by our own merit is not the prerequisite or the co-requisite even of our salvation in Christ Jesus. We are incapable of obeying the law because of our sinful nature. That is the gospel, that's the gospel message in a nutshell. God did what the law could not do. 
But Paul goes on to say that the life of the true believer will be marked by the indwelling spirit because he not only liberates us from the law, but he empowers us to right living, to obey God's good commands. Verse four says that in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And down in verse nine, it says, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Now we're not talking about perfectionism here. It's simply to say that obedience is a necessary and possible aspect of Christian discipleship. And although the law cannot secure this obedience, the spirit dwelling within us can. Ephesians 2, 8 summarizes, 8 through 10 summarizes it well. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, God saved us apart from good works that we might be able to do good works. That we might be able to follow his law to find joy in obedience and to bring him glory. This is the power of the spirit dwelling in us. Sure, we will wrestle with indwelling sin. Paul covers this extensively in Romans 7. But it will not overcome us because of the indwelling spirit. I love to read biographies. Um, in particular, I like to read biographies about prolific evangelists and missionaries. Um, one of my favorite biographies um, that you might have read is about a man that you probably know, Dr. Frank Barker. Um, Dr. Barker was one of the founding pastors of our denomination, and in his autobiography, he tells the story of his conversion, which, if you haven't heard before, may surprise you. In his younger years, Dr. Barker lived what he would refer to as a wild life, um, prone to heavy drinking and chasing a good time. But through a series of events, including a near-death experience, um, he determined that he wanted to clean up his act and be a better person. Um, so he decided that the best way to do that was to go to seminary and become a pastor. <laughs> but while serving as a pulpit supply, as pulpit supply for a small church in Oxford, Alabama, while studying at Columbia Seminary, he became frustrated that his life hadn't changed much. And he came to realize that he wasn't even sure he was a Christian. In fact, he came to realize that he wasn't even sure what a Christian was. He had spent several months at that point trying to pick himself up by his bootstraps and change his habits. And finally, here in the middle of seminary, here in the middle of preaching week after week in the small town in rural Alabama, he began interrogating his heart and searching for what it meant to be a Christian. He learned by reading the very words that we're reading this morning in Romans that to be a Christian is to believe and to trust that Christ's finished work on the cross is sufficient to save him. And that by his spirit, he's freed from the law and empowered to live in joyful obedience to the Lord. When Dr. Barker finally put his trust in the Lord Jesus, his life began to change. Not because he was able to 
to be obedient in the flesh, but because the Holy Spirit dwelt in him and set him free, and it changed his whole life. He became more sensitive to sin, more in love with his Savior, and the Spirit began to bear fruit in his life. Many of you have been impacted by the fruit of the Spirit working in Dr. Barker's life. The same Spirit dwells in you, Christian. What a promise to cling to in times of doubt to help you grow in assurance that the Spirit dwells in you. What an awesome incentive to grow in godliness. Since the Spirit dwells in us as he did in the ancient tabernacle and the temple, this leads us to become more and more holy in practice as a temple of the Holy Spirit. By guiding our thoughts and directing our actions, the Spirit helps us negotiate our daily struggles and overcome sin. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not possess the Holy Spirit. To belong to Christ Jesus is to possess his Spirit. And so if you have rested in Christ alone for salvation, the Holy Spirit does indwell you and he is at work in your life. Let us always remember that we may be confident that the Spirit is working in and through us, even when it's hard for us to see or feel it. And let us also set our minds on the things of the Spirit. That's our second point. Verse 5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. What's it mean to be spiritually minded? Do we think about that? Do you, do you think about that? What it means to be spiritually minded, to set our minds on the things of the Spirit? Paul letter, later writes in his letter to the Philippians, um, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul says that to set our mind on the Spirit is to set our mind on the things of God. How do we do that? What do we spend our time consuming? How are we presenting ourselves as instruments of righteousness, as Paul described in Romans 6, by the things that we watch and the things that we hear? What are we exposing our children to? How much time are they spending on things like YouTube or things that are really pretty valueless versus how much time they are spending on biblical and eternal things? If we feed our minds on the Bible and Christian publications and train it by godly conversation and discipline it to critique what we see and hear elsewhere by applying biblical truths to those ideas, we will grow in godliness and our minds will increasingly become instruments of righteousness for God. Whether we set our minds on the desires of the flesh or the spirit is to make them, to make those things the absorbing objects of thought, interest, affection, and purpose. It's a question of what preoccupies us, of the ambitions which drive us and the concerns which engross us, 
of how we spend our time and our energies, of what we concentrate on and give ourselves up to. When we're saturated in the word and the spirit, this influences all facets of our life. The biblical narrative begins to shape and inform our own narrative. So what preoccupies us? Where do our ambitions lie? Are we saturating ourselves in the means of grace that grow our affections for God, which is where home is? Are we setting our minds on the things that are above us, on the things that are above, as Paul later writes in Colossians 3? And that takes us to our final point this morning, the the resurrection of the Spirit. Romans 11 gives us the all-important truth that if the Spirit of God indwells you this morning, God is going to raise you from the dead at Christ's second coming and give new life to your mortal bodies. The trials of this life are many. Many of us in this room have experienced great suffering this year, even this past month. There are times when these trials seem so overwhelming that we may be tempted to lose hope. Our bodies are weakened and decaying because of our mortal state brought on through the fall. But here in verse 10, Paul encourages us that if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in ye, in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. For those who are indwelt by the spirit, walking by the spirit, setting our minds on the spirit, God promises that he will, that we will be resurrected by that same spirit and glory. So for the joy set before us at the resurrection, we endure everything for Christ. Jesus didn't promise that obedience to him would be rewarded by men in this life. But there is joy in obeying Christ, vastly more joy than if we lived for the praise of men or sought rewards on this earth. Joy that flows from unshakable hope found here in Romans 8.11, not from the shifting circumstances of our life. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. If you really believe that God is for you and not against you, and that he will give life to your mortal body, and that whatever good you give up in this life will be repaid 100-fold in the resurrection of the just, and that you will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your Father, then you have an inexhaustible reservoir of strength to keep doing the good that God has called you to do. Therefore, the essence of the Christian life is not the struggle to win the reward of men, but the struggle to keep believing in the resurrection of your body and glory. And the great foundation of this hope is that God raised Jesus from the dead, that he reigns now as king over earth and heaven and death and hell, and that he cannot fail in his purpose to raise us up in glory. To him belong all praise and honor and glory and thanks forever and ever. These are wonderful truths. 
wonderful and amazing truths that the Lord has revealed to us through Paul this morning. But they are true only for those who put their faith in Christ. Friends, I invite you to look into your heart this morning and ask, has the Holy Spirit of God made you alive in Jesus Christ? Have you put your trust in him alone for salvation? Hear these truths, allow them to penetrate your heart and make them your own. Then nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's how Paul ends this chapter. He says, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christian, cling tightly to that truth this morning. Let us pray. Father, we thank you um, so much for your gospel revealed to us through your word this morning. God, we pray that we would cling to it. Um, God, that we would find joy in it and that it would change our lives, that our hearts would be softened um, to a joyful obedience of your word, God, that we might live a life um, more in love with you every day, God, and that it would be all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.